Welcome to Eat With Be The RD. I'm Bretta, Registered Dietitian Nutritionist. This podcast is an invitation for you to join me at the table where we discuss all things nutrition, health, and life. All right, before we start this episode, I just want to let you guys know that there is a content warning here. Um, I get to talk with amazing registered dietitian, Isabel Bouchard, who specializes in eating disorders. So we talk about disordered eating behaviors, um, some strategies on, you know, helping loved ones with disordered eating. Um, Maybe if you yourself think you have disordered eating behaviors, and then we go over some of the nuances of eating disorders as well. So if you are struggling with an eating disorder or you are actively in recovery from an eating disorder, just know that this episode may not be for you. Um, I think Isabel and I get to talk about some really, really important topics under this kind of like disordered eating gray area. And all of the resources are in the show notes. So um, if maybe you are just looking for help today, please just go see the help section um, in the show notes. And that will take you there and you don't have to even listen to the podcast. Um, But if you are intrigued by this topic, you want to know more, maybe you're looking for additional support, please don't hesitate to reach out to Isabel or myself. Um, This is not necessarily my area of expertise, but I'm happy to connect you with the appropriate resources. I also want to point out that um, one of my favorite podcast, which is called Four Things with Amy Brown. Um, They actually have a mini series within her main podcast called Outweigh. And it is all about like the gray area of eating disorders. And she has partnered with registered dietitian Lisa Markley of the Well Necessities on Instagram. And they um, speak with people who have experienced eating disorders and they share their stories and they talk with therapists and trainers. And um, it's just a really really beautiful mini series so if you do have a chance I would check that out there are four episodes kind of within this four things with Amy Brown podcast I will link it in the show notes as well but um, definitely Isabel and I just kind of scratch the surface eating disorders go so deep um, and there's so many different facets to it as well so if you're looking for additional information or you know how to help your loved ones or just looking to hear other people's stories um, and struggles with eating disorders go check that out as well all right that's all I have for you Um, here is Isabel Hey everyone, this is my good friend Isabel Bouchard. Um, today we're going to talk about eating disorders. So Isabel, tell me what got you started in eating disorders. Yeah, um, so eating disorders for me wasn't my right away path. That's not what I saw myself doing, um, which a lot of people, I, I feel that's their story is they don't, um, that's not immediately the career path they see for themselves. They just find it along the way. So I started off really interested in sports nutrition when I was interning in that field and learning more about it, I started to see there was a huge need for eating disorders. So that was my first real awakening was all the eating disorders in sports and in athletes. So from that point forward, I, I started to want to learn more about it. And I got involved in IADEP, which is um, an association for eating disorder professionals from all different disciplines. And I just kind of fell in love with it. Um, I really loved helping people in that way. Uh, it's, it's no longer about telling people what foods they can or cannot have based on um, whatever, you know, chronic disease they're struggling with or what's going on in their life. But instead, you're trying to encourage people to develop a, a real positive relationship with food. And that aligned with my beliefs a lot more. So um, a lot of things pointed in, in the direction of me working with eating disorders um, it, but again, like it wasn't the first thing I thought I would do. And I'm now I can't imagine myself doing anything else. Awesome. Okay. So give us a little bit more background on eating disorders. So like, what is an eating disorder? There are a lot of different types of eating disorders. And even then, um, I have clients who, I mean, you, people, we don't belong in boxes, right? Like we, mm-hmm. we won't always fit a certain mold, but, um, we need things to be diagnosable because of insurance and because that's the way the healthcare system works. So there are different diagnoses. Um, The main three that people know about are anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, and binge eating disorder. So those are the main three. 
um, a few others beyond that. Um, there's uh, an eating disorder specific to individuals with type 1 diabetes. There's an eating disorder called ARFID, Avoidant Restrictive Feeding and Intake Disorder. Um, there are there's an eating disorder that um, is not diagnosable yet, but it's called orthorexia. And there, there are individuals working to make this a diagnosis. Then there's another diagnosis called um, OSFED, otherwise, speci otherwise specified feeding and eating disorders. That's a mouthful, but that <laughs> one's more for, <laughs> that's more for if you don't totally fit the mold of one type of eating disorder specifically, or maybe you know, you've bounced around or you have traits of different types. Um, you might fall in, into that category then just so they could give you some type of diagnosis. But um, the main three are, are, like I said, anorexia, bulimia, and, and binge eating disorder. And those are more well-known. Yeah. So with, um, you mentioned orthorexia. Can you describe what like orthorexia is for the listeners? Yes. Orthorexia um, was created by Stephen Bratman. So if anyone looks up orthorexia on Google, then <laughs> <laughs> he is kind of the person you want to, to look for his information because he's the creator of it. Um, how he described it, kind of coming up with this label, I guess, so to speak, is um, he was working with clients who he just started to notice that they were very obsessed with being healthy in following the fads and the trends and diet culture. Um, like for example, um, pure, clean, natural, organic, um, being able to exercise a certain amount every day, certain types of exercise, what, that obsession with trying to be the healthiest version of yourself. And he thought, okay, there's no way that this could be, there's no way that this is actually healthy, right? <laughs> like this is a level yeah. of obsession that, how is that healthy? So how he defines it is an unhealthy desire to be healthy. Um, so there are different quizzes and stuff you can take to kind of see online. Okay, where do I fall with this? Um, if you identify as somebody who um, you are this person obsessed with health, but how, you know, the difference between just someone who wants to be healthy and someone who has orthorexia is this is starting to affect much more than just um how you eat or how you exercise it's beginning to affect your relationships it's beginning to be all you think about it's hard to sleep maybe it's breaking you financially um it's causing you to isolate or withdraw you don't want to go to restaurants you have to be in control you're having mood swings irritability maybe you're losing weight um so rapidly that if you're a female maybe you lose your period if you're a male maybe you lose your sex drive so it begins to work its way into all these different avenues of your life and that is an eating disorder. That's what eating disorders do. So orthorexia is a crazy complicated one. And as dietitians, I think we, we can see this a lot, especially within our own career field. But like I said, it doesn't have a diagnosis yet. So people are still trying and the professionals are still trying to learn how do we actually treat this? Sure. It's yeah, it sounds very multifaceted and really complicated, as I'm sure most eating disorders are. But mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, so who is going to be at like risk for an eating disorder? And what are some of like those red flags that we that you might see? Really, everyone is at risk for an eating disorder. They they really don't discriminate at all. Um, that includes anyone of, of any ethnicity, any age. Um, any socioeconomic level or status. Um, so I have clients, I think my youngest right now um, is eight years old. Wow. And um, I personally have worked with individuals in their 60s, but um, I haven't worked with anyone older than that, but that doesn't mean that they don't exist. Um, so the other thing is you can develop an eating disorder at any time in your life. Now, if we're looking at specifically red flags or who is most at risk, the average age of onset for the development of an eating disorder is around those preteen ages, anywhere between 12 and 13 years old. However, that statistic was from the mid 2000s. So I believe now that it's likely much lower than that, just with the exposure kids have now to social media, to diet culture, to society standards of beauty and nutrition. Um, so it could be much lower than that. But um, specifically red flags. So again, it, it also doesn't discriminate with gender. However, females 
are more at risk for developing an eating disorder than males are. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to take another subset of that population, individuals who are gay, bisexual, transgender, anyone who falls, falls under LGBTQ, they're also at high risk for developing an eating disorder as well. Um, so those are kind of, those are our risk categories, I would say. Um, definitely there are more, more than that, but those are some big ones. Um, then talking about red flags. Mm-hmm. Um, so we talked a little bit in orthorexia about how an eating disorder kind of weaves into different areas of your life. So if you start to notice someone um, really shifting in their mood and they're socially isolating themselves or withdrawing, um, if you're noticing somebody is acting strange around food, like they're, they're just how they're eating or their behaviors when they're eating seem different to you, then uh, that's definitely something to kind of monitor and reach out to them if you're concerned. Um, so for example, if someone is un- unwilling to really eat in front of others or when they do eat in front of others, it's either really small bites or maybe really quick eating, fast paces. Um, if you're noticing someone is really dissatisfied with their body and um, always talking about how they wanna lose weight or they uh, wish they looked a different way, that's also a risk factor for an eating disorder. Um, so there are a lot of a lot of different red flags, and they present themselves in different ways. But anything that has to do with with body image and food, especially together, that's usually when you're going to see the eating disorder present itself. Mm-hmm. I even like had some friends just like throughout. Um, like growing up that had some sort of eating disorder, obviously, like it wasn't like a big, like, you know, topic of conversation that we really discussed. Mm-hmm. But like, even so much as like, you know, what was really interesting is what people were giving up for Lind, um, kind of ended up feeding into like their eating disorders, um, which was really interesting to me, like now, you know, that I know more about eating disorders and looking back on things like that as well. Um, so if someone you think might, if they're kind of looking at this and, and I think it's hard, um, how do you see individuals like typically finding you? Is it on their own? Um, like have they hit rock ball? Like what is that? How do clients get to you? Uh, all different kinds of ways. I think that's a a good question. And I'm, I'm actually trying to to learn more about that myself so Uh I can, help people get to me easier. But um, I work a lot with children, actually, with youth or with teenagers. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times, um, parents will find me either through their child psychiatrist or um, their therapist, because these things will come up in those sessions. Mm -hmm. Um, Other people are just generally looking for a dietitian or um, if they suspect they have their have an eating disorder, they'll just Google, you know, eating disorder treatment. uh, And so with having my website on Google, mm-hmm. um, and I, I try really hard to make my website visible. So that way people can find me easily. Mm-hmm. Um, because right now, in where I'm at in Columbia, Missouri, we don't have a, a whole bunch of resources. So I, I try to make myself as sure. available as I can. Yeah, but really all different kinds of ways. Um, so some people are, are finding me on their own, especially if they're adults. Okay, but then kids are usually kind of being being dragged to me by their parents, sure. not often by their choice. <laughs> sure. So if someone thinks they have an eating disorder, maybe like what's that first step in the treatment process? Well, I would, so the treatment team would consist of the individual with a therapist. If, if they're someone who's already on medication, a psychiatrist, definitely a primary care physician. So PCP for some women, that's their gynecologist. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the dietitian. So typically what I see when it comes to the treatment team, people have a physician usually, but they don't always tell the physician about their eating habits um, yeah. in depth enough for them to realize, oh, we could be dealing with an eating disorder. Um, so typically the first step people will take is disclosing this information to a therapist if they have one or finding a therapist or finding a dietitian to talk to about this. From that step forward, whoever you bring onto your treatment team first will help you form the rest of your team because an eating disorder is not just a mental thing. It's not just a nutrition thing, Mm -hmm. um, but it affects your whole body and 
it can be dangerous. So that's why you need all those different treatment team members. So we can kind of focus on everything at once and not just breaking you down into, um, into boxes. Sure. Yeah. It kind of provides just like a more comprehensive treatment plan. Um, so you talked about a few, you know, different, like you, you talked about the groups that are like more at risk and then a few of the other, you know, groups that you wouldn't commonly think of, um, having an eating disorder, but are there any other like kind of common misconceptions about eating disorders? There are a lot of misconceptions about (laughs) eating disorders. Um, a fun thing to go to is um, looking up the nine truths about eating disorders. Okay. And this is a really great tool, especially if, if you are trying to educate a loved one or a family member um, who, who knows someone with an eating disorder. Um, some of the big ones are that no one chooses to have an eating disorder. It's not a choice. It's not something that they enjoy living with or that they can just snap out of. But, um, it's, there's definitely a genetic component to it and it takes time. I mean, it it requires treatment, just like people are beginning to be more understanding of depression and anxiety and how that can manifest in someone's life, um, bipolar disorder. And people Mm -hmm. are starting to understand, okay, I know that's not a choice. I know they can't just pick themselves up from that. Uh, Well, same is true for an eating disorder. Yeah. Uh, In addition to that, a lot of the, the misconceptions are around gender and, um, feeling that this is a female illness or an illness um, where they're just obsessed with themselves or it's a vain type deal. And that's not true at all either. Um, So the nine truths about eating disorders is a really good tool to look through just to educate yourself and understand the the illness a little bit better. Awesome. So that kind of leads to there's also more of maybe this like gray area towards eating disorders. And I, I don't know, I kind of normally would call it like disordered eating um, because, you know, a lot of people have disordered eating tendencies, but they maybe don't have like a full on eating disorder. Um, and you mentioned uh, kind of in the beginning that, you know, t- people are exposed to diet culture. What is diet culture? Diet culture is a very broad term, just describing, um, well, one diet and how there are so many different diets out there, so many different things that are influencing how and what we choose to eat. Uh, And most of the time, you're not just following one diet, but you might be bouncing around to different types of diets, all in the while come with their own rules and restrictions. Um, At the same time, diet culture sets the standards for beauty and the standards for what society is supposed to look at as health or as the correct thing to do for your body. So um, that comes with its own sets of rules, standards, restrictions, but diet culture looks different for everybody. So for a lot of my clients, um, the first thing I have them do is we write out all the diets that they've been on when they were on these diets, what happened, why they stopped following them. And then I have them use that as a way to kind of show, okay, what were the rules and restrictions with all of these diets and how has that kind of morphed and changed your beliefs around food today? Mm -hmm. So diet culture is, is what you see on Instagram. It's, it's the pressure you feel to be thin or to work out 30 minutes every single day or to do hit cardio instead of something else that you would enjoy. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a lot of just pressure. Sure. Okay, so how does that influence eating disorders? Like, does... for a lot of people, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, for a lot of people, that's where it starts. Okay, is um, is with diet culture and and kind of like I said, how that changes your beliefs mm-hmm. or maybe sets the stage for um, a negative relationship with food and with your body. Okay, kind of feeling like you're never good enough, or you really want to change. You're dissatisfied with who you are or how you look. Mm-hmm. Sure. And then just like the kind of the stress and anxiety that comes from trying to maintain whatever standards you've set upon yourself. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what right now, I mean, is what are some hot topics in like the eating disorder practitioner community and maybe some different like emerging practice areas or research? Like what's what's new outside of just, you know, that we know eating disorders exist? 
I think a lot of it is uh, just getting more awareness and definitely getting more avenues for treatment available to people. So I know a lot of, there are definitely some fantastic treatment centers out there and they're trying to expand as much as they can because there's a huge need for that. Um, Like in my case, I live in a college town and there, I mean, there are a lot of eating disorders on a college campus or like you said, that gray area of disordered eating and Mm -hmm. some that leads to an eating disorder later down the road. And we have a lack of resources. We have so many therapists and so many dietitians in this town without the expertise in eating disorders. So a lot of times um, it doesn't get caught and there is no one to kind of reach out to that individual and say, Hey, I think you could really benefit from meeting with a dietitian or meeting with a therapist um, with eating disorder experience. The other, the other kind of hotter areas in research is um, looking specifically at, well, what is the genetic component that uh, maybe puts more people at risk for developing anorexia nervosa or binge eating disorder, Mm -hmm. bulimia nervosa. Um, What exactly happens to the body in that state of starvation and how long can, can someone really survive and with those behaviors, um, what type of toll does it take on their lifespan? Um, what does it do to the brain? How is the brain really fathoming between all of these behaviors and, and maybe malnutrition or undernutrition? So there's a lot of areas for research, yeah. but um, I, there's not a whole lot of eating disorder research groups around the world either. So very little out of time and it takes a long time yeah. to get anything published, <laughs> but um, the, the group of professionals is growing and treatment around the world is growing. And so there's a lot of excitement for the future and what could happen. Fantastic. That sounds so interesting. Um, mm-hmm. I want to transition just a little bit into talking a little bit more about diet culture. Um, so I know you're familiar with health at every size or haze. Um, can you explain what haze is? Yeah, health at every size um, is, I would say it's it's all a part of kind of this body positive movement, that positive movement. And really its main purpose though, is to help people see that weight is not a determinant of health and especially trying to shift the healthcare system from being so focused on the number on the scale and, and using that to dictate healthcare practices and instead getting more versed in what's really important, what, what really does determine if this person is healthy or not. That is not weight. Um, that is not their size or their shape. So how can we deliver better healthcare knowing now that, okay, weight is not, not a, a very strong determinant of health. Sure. Yeah. And something I think a lot of people don't know, especially if they're like uncomfortable um, or just kind of the stigma about, you know, seeking health or like health care because they know that a lot of times people just get chalked up to like oh well you just need to lose weight okay thanks bye um mm-hmm. and when I tell people about this they don't always believe me but I've had people uh friends and um people I've worked with tell me that before that I went to see my primary care provider about you know something totally non-weight related and they were like well you just need to lose 20 pounds and they're like what um and they didn't and you know the diet advice that they got to lose 20 pounds even was just like well stop eating rice and pasta okay bye and like that's all this person mm-hmm. like not all this person eats but that's like a huge staple in their diet and all of these things and they were never referred to someone who can help them you know seek health or actually treat the underlying cause um regardless of what their weight is so uh, yeah i think yeah. there's like this huge systemic problem where we're just like crazy focused on that number yeah and like you said the, the recommendations just kind of get thrown out there without any follow-up and and it almost sounds like there's no logic to it like where did you get 20 pounds from like why why 20 pounds (laughs) why is that so important and then the time frame or you know who do I go to for help or stop eating pasta what yeah I mean so yeah I, I think a lot of this stuff just gets kind of you know word vomited and like you said there's just there's no follow up there's no helping that individual understand why you have those recommendations and Really, if that individual probably even asked, why are you recommending that? I'm sure it would, it would stump that provider. Yeah. And they'd have to, have to really think about, well, why am I actually, where did I get 20 pounds from? Right. Yeah. 
Yeah. So stuff like that drives me crazy. But, you know, I, I just want people to know that unless you have a medication that is weight dosing is weight based, there's really most of the time no good reason for your provider to actually like weigh you um, mm-hmm. at your clinic appointments. So you can always decline. Yeah. Um, okay. So that kind of brings what's, so then we have this other kind of area of intuitive eating. So can you tell me about like what intuitive eating is and how that overlaps with haze? Cause they're two different things, but are kind of connected. Yes. So intuitive eating is, um, how I like to explain this to my clients is somewhere along the way with diet culture right there, helping us out we forgot how to eat normally. We forgot what that looks like to just kind of listen to our body, eat what sounded good, trusting that our body gets the nutrition that it needs and be okay with that. Um, so we needed dietitians to literally write a book to teach us how to eat normally again. <laughs> um, and thank goodness they did because it has started this whole new wave of, of people trying to abandon diet culture and get back connected with their bodies, trusting themselves, eating food because it tastes good and they enjoy it again. Um, and it's allowed us dietitians to really communicate this message in a more effective way. So intuitive eating or normal eating, also called mindful eating. I mean, there are so many different words for it now, um, but they all are preaching the same thing. And that has to do with, is, with separating out you know, the emotional, the instinctual, and the physical. So are you taking care of your mental health, your emotions, or are you using food to cope with that? Are you balancing the physical, physical sensations and cravings for food along with what your body truly needs for nourishment and instincts? Are you actually eating when you're hungry and listening to your fullness? Are you forgetting what, what that feels like or ignoring those, those hunger fullness cues? And is that maybe what's causing you to not be able to trust your body or your body to not be able to trust you. So it's kind of based off those three pillars, but a big part of intuitive eating also includes respecting your body and giving up diet culture. Because if you are still trying to hold on to both diet culture and eating normally again, you're going to have a very hard time doing that. Um, And a lot of, a lot of times that means you have to kind of learn, like it says, respect your body, accept your body and grieve the body that you wish you had. So if this sounds like kind of enticing, like someone's like, oh, this sounds way better than what I'm doing right now. What, what Mm -hmm. is that like first step that people should be looking at taking? Cause you know, intuitive eating is a process. It's not just, oh, you do X, Y, and Z, and now you're an intuitive eater Mm -hmm. and everything is better. But to what's the first step in starting that process to become an intuitive eater? Yeah, I I think that's really great you said that because people need to know this is not easy, especially if you've been someone who has grown up in a home with diet culture all around you, with with diets all around you, or if you have been someone who has either had an eating disorder, is in recovery, or has been dieting your whole life. This is hard to get back to whatever this normal eating is. Um, At the same time, intuitive eating is not appropriate for somebody in the middle of an eating disorder. There's a lot more that that individual has to work through before they can be ready for intuitive eating. Um, if you try to do intuitive eating now, especially on your own, it's going to be way more difficult um, and feel impossible at times. So for an individual who this does sound like, okay, I think I'm ready for this. I'm ready to give up dieting, ready to give up diet culture and, and try this thing out. Um, intuitive eating that was written by two women who are both dietitians, and they have a website. If you just Google intuitive eating, it'll pop up. And um, they actually created a course where health professionals can become certified intuitive eating counselors. So you can always start first with their website and find those individuals. Um, Or you can look for a registered dietitian who actually um, has listed on their website or in their profile that they practice intuitive eating, mindful eating, um, a lot of eating disorder dietitians do this as well. Um, and then the other thing you can do if you're not ready to maybe meet with someone over it is I would say get on Amazon and buy the book. It's very inexpensive. I think it's like eight or nine dollars. And you can just start there, start reading it, start learning about it. 
and um, they even have a workbook. So if you're someone who likes more hands-on activities, you can go through that as well. Mm -hmm. Awesome. And yeah. And a lot of times I think what you might find in someone's profile is maybe like a non-diet dietitian. Um, It'd also be other language someone might use too, if that's what you're looking for. Um, So if someone's coming to see you like for an eating disorder or even just, I mean, it could just be for, you know, um, intuitive eating counseling, but what can people expect in a visit? If somebody is coming to see me and and you said not for an eating disorder, but just for general disordered eating or intuitive Mm -hmm. eating. So, um, what that would look like is for an initial visit, just like if you were to go see a therapist, we want to get to know you and we want to get to know your story. So we're going to ask you to, to sit down and explain to us whatever you feel is important in helping us understand who you are, how you got to, to this place with food and what your goals and expectations are for working with a dietitian or wanting to learn about intuitive eating and apply it to your life. Um, from that point forward, I like to work through the intuitive eating workbook for my clients because I just think they spell things out so beautifully and it gives us direction and helps them to actually read words that can resonate with them. Um, The other great thing about that book is it shares a lot of, of life experiences from other individuals who have gone through the intuitive eating process. I give clients a lot of different tasks and things to work on throughout the week, but ultimately um, there's a saying where if, if, the provider is working harder than the client, then progress won't be made. So ultimately, if you are going to see a therapist or a dietitian for this sort of thing, you have to be willing to put in the work because I, I can't fix you without mm-hmm. you, um, without you really being the one to take the steps. Um, and ultimately it's your journey. So I like people to kind of set their own goals, um, bring, bring to the table, bring to sessions, what it is they want to talk about and work on that week. And, a lot of it is, is yeah, just what steps do you want to take? Where do you feel like you need to prioritize or, or what you need to work on this week and what's more pressing for you? Because it can vary day by day. Right. Week by week, <laughs> by month. So how often do you normally try and see clients? I like to start off weekly because I, I feel like going every two weeks when you first meet somebody makes it difficult to, to begin to make a connection with someone. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I like to space it out as soon as I can to give that individual more time to work on what they want to work on. Um, and also giving them the opportunity to, to be on their own and feel independent from me for a while mm-hmm. so that if they, if they do start to recoil or feel a little nervous about something, I'm right there to, to help them out. I haven't gone anywhere, but giving them the space to really, you know, take advantage of that independence and do with it what they can, mm-hmm. but apply the skills and the knowledge and, from there right awesome so when it comes to restriction um i think that looks you know whether it's in the form of a diet but i think there are other reasons people might restrict certain things um how do you feel about restriction (laughs) um as far as like is all restriction bad like where is there this line between like restriction being harmful um and people trying to limit foods for like health purposes or is there a leg line or should we just not do it what what are your thoughts on that yeah um I think you're laughing <laughs> it's like because, a loaded you know, that's a loaded question, question. yeah <laughs> but I yeah. think some people are probably um, wondering because they're you know if you're gonna tell I think when you tell people that it, it's really kind of counterintuitive to everything they've probably been told about food their entire lives um is that they should be restricting oh, something. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I, it is a loaded question, but you can give it your best shot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think it's exactly um, the mindset behind it. So if, if you're restricting something because you feel like you should, or you have to, or you need to, that's what I would challenge. Um, because really, I, I don't like the word restriction. I to me, it sounds like deprivation. It doesn't lead to anything good. It's not sustainable. It's not what you truly want. If, if you are restricting something that to me tells, you know, sends the message that you wish you weren't doing this, Sure. (laughs) right? We only feel restricted when that's kind of a negative thing. It casts a negative glow. So, um, there's a difference between restricting, um, and maybe what 
a better word would be um, would be balance or moderation. Mm -hmm. And even that sometimes gets gets kind of picked apart and taken to an extreme. Sure. So if you are restricting, I would encourage you to just think about that. Why does it feel like restriction? Um, what would it look like if you didn't restrict anything? Mm -hmm. um, one of the biggest first steps some people have to take with intuitive eating is what we call legalizing all foods. So that means if, if you have made it illegal or made it forbidden or restricted your body's uh, you know, desire to eat Oreos, then I'm going to tell you to legalize Oreos. <laughs> and <laughs> that seems very scary and crazy to a lot mm -hmm. of people. And for some, that means they're going to have a whole sleeve of Oreos every single day until they can truly trust, hey, those Oreos are going to be there tomorrow mm -hmm. and the next day and the next day. And I'm always allowed to have them. And that completely shifts your mindset in that relationship with food. And next thing you know, you're eating Oreos because you want to and you like it, not because you feel like you have to or um, that you're not going to get them ever again. So that that's I don't even know if I answered that question fully. Yeah, but... <laughs> no, I think you did. And I think that's a great point. I've had so many people tell me, like, I can't do moderation. And I'm like, well, that's probably because like you're making moderation like a diet um or you're not actually allowing yourself to like you think that oh you could only eat the two cookies when like you can eat all the cookies you want and eventually you're probably just not gonna want them as much um so yeah no I hear that on like the moderation but that's one of the things that I find a little bit um frustrating with people when they're like well I can't do moderation well I don't you've maybe been doing moderation, uh, and not, uh, an appropriate way maybe. So, yeah. Or maybe you've been doing restriction and calling. Yeah. It <laughs> right. Yeah, sure. Definitely. Um, okay. So how can like, we as the general public, cause I'm not sure. I think, I don't know, maybe if something's labeled like, Ooh, we're discussing eating disorders. Someone with an eating disorder is maybe not going to like show up here, but a lot of people who are worried about someone that they love, um, or, you know, really just supporting, you know, their communities a little bit better might be showing up here. So how can we really support um, people with eating disorders, like as like a general public? Um, I would say first things first, just like people would tell you um, to do with anyone with a loved one of, of, you know, battling something that you're not familiar with would be educate yourself. So um like we talked about the nine truths about eating disorders, the different stereotypes that exist, the um, kind of misbeliefs people have. Educate yourself so you don't walk in there and make assumptions or say the wrong things that um, could make that individual feel worse. Mm -hmm. Definitely um, understanding that eating disorders, there is a lot of shame and guilt that that individual is already placing on themselves and they do not need any shame or judgment from you. Uh, they, they need compassion, they need understanding, they need support, just like any of us would need if we're going through something difficult. So understanding that how you talk to them, the tone of your voice, um, how you offer that support, trying to keep it, you know, very judgment free and understanding and compassionate. But really, it's, it's a hard thing reaching out to somebody with an eating disorder, because a lot of a lot of individuals with eating disorders like to keep it private. Um, and they have a hard time asking for help too. Mm -hmm. So uh, I still think it's, it's usually <laughs> most of the time more helpful than harmful to approach that individual and, and try to offer them support. Um, if they turn it away, that's okay. They at least know that you're available now and they might reach out to you at a time that they feel better or that um, feels more comfortable for them. So if they, if they turn you away at first, don't get discouraged um, just, you know, continue to let them know that you're there. And help. what language could someone use to like offer support? Um, well, I think a lot of it is just letting them know, Hey, I'm, I'm here. I'm noticing this. Okay. I'm worried about you. I, um, know that, you know, I've been trying to educate myself. And so I'm, I'm aware that there are, support options out there for you. So, you know, you have to protect yourself mm -hmm. too, because dealing with someone who's going through hardship 
takes a toll on the support person's mental health <laughs> and their well-being at the sure. same time. Like we've all heard of of caregiver grief, yeah. so um, caregiver burden. So realizing like, okay, this is where you need to draw the line. You can be that support person for someone, but you also need to know when a professional needs to step mm-hmm. in um, because you also, you cannot help them fully. Um, so knowing too that when you offer support, letting them know, Hey, you know, I've, I've looked up therapists in the area, or I've heard that a therapist and a dietitian are a part of a treatment team for that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I would be totally happy to take you to an appointment or go there with you, um, whatever it takes. That's awesome. Yeah. And then just as kind of like the, you know, as we exist in real life, I think something that's really helpful because you don't always know if someone has an issue with food, their body or an eating disorder, if we can maybe just like stop commenting on people's bodies, whether it's like positive or negative, (laughs) like, you know, you don't need to say, oh, wow, Mm -hmm. you look uh, like, have you lost weight? Oh, you look so great. You know, there's a lot of other things you can say about someone, um, that has nothing to do with their body. And that's maybe not reinforcing any sort of disordered eating behaviors. Oh yeah. And I, I'm not sure when you're going to be airing this, but, um, I'm assuming the coronavirus is still going on. There's, oh, there's a lot of talk on social media about gaining weight during the coronavirus or not being able to stop eating or, um, you know, not being able to go to the gym and for an individual with an eating disorder, trying to go through recovery amidst all of this, that is so negative to be posting on social media. One, it is very far from mm-hmm. the truth. Um, the, the whole gaining 15 pounds during the coronavirus. Yeah. Show, show me the science. Like that doesn't happen to, to people. Right. So stop saying that. Um, again, you're you're just talking about weight and and smearing it everywhere and talking about um, hardships with food. Whereas there's somebody who's actually maybe having a very difficult time just eating mm-hmm. lunch or controlling themselves um, by you and using the skills that they're you know people are having to meet with their therapists and their dietitians over video chat now. I mean, support is is just hard to find amidst mm-hmm. all of this. So posting that stuff on social media you're really, you don't know who you're affecting and it's not helpful and it's not funny at all. Right. So um, definitely just be more mindful. And with the quarantine 15, I think that brings up a good point of like set point theory. Can you like talk about set point um, real quick? Yeah. Um, we could talk all day yeah. about <laughs> set point theory. So to make it very short and brief, um, it's, it's called set point theory for a reason because um, it's believed that people have this maintenance weight. So um, obviously that weight will change throughout stages of life. Um, Whatever we weighed at 14, we should not be weighing (laughs) in our 20s or 30s or 40s, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And then post-menopause, we should not be weighing what we weighed pre-menopause typically. So um, our set point will change. But the reason it has the tag on theory is because we don't know why biologically we tend to have this weight that we maintain at for a duration of time in our lives. So there are a lot of different theories that are going around um, scientifically, of course, of trying to propose why that could be. But ideally, especially in concern to health, we know that if somebody is weight cycling, yo-yo dieting, whatever it could be, where their weight is going up and down and up and down, that is worse for your health than to maintain. Mm -hmm. So our body likes to be in homeostasis. It likes to be in, in kind of this nice, calm middle ground, um, at all times. And so weight is an, is another part of that. It's whenever we, we go up and down and weight so drastically our body, our hormones, we all, we shift in response to that. Um, thus taking our body out of that calm middle ground Mm -hmm. area. So maintenance, that's set point theory. Um, again, we, we don't know a whole lot about it. And we could talk longer about those theories, of course, but that's kind of the gist mm-hmm. of it. And I like to propose that to people too, as another reason why diets are not yeah. good for us <laughs> is because it can cause our weights to fluctuate a lot and we don't want that. Right. And I think that goes to the point, like your body's going to want to stay the same weight. So there's really no reason to stress over like, you know, gaining weight or 
losing weight during, you know, your quarantine. Um, and it really just engage in behaviors that are serving you, whatever that looks like. Cause I think that's going to look different mm-hmm. for other, for different people. Okay. So since, yeah. um, I want to circle back to this real quick, but if someone, um, if you're having a meal with someone with an eating disorder, so I know a lot of times in eating disorders, people are like isolating, um, but in maybe like a rare instance when they're not, and you've invited someone over for dinner and they do have an eating disorder what advice do you have for people having a meal with someone who has an eating disorder? That's a really good question. Um, if you, if you are in the know that someone you're sitting at dinner with or at a meal with has an eating disorder, um, just like anybody, we don't want to feel like we're being watched like a hawk. Um, aside from having an eating disorder, these are real people, mm-hmm. they have real <laughs> feelings, they have real lives, they have more to talk about than just um, their eating disorder. So I would, I would try in the, in the back of your mind to think about that first and know, okay, this is just a person in front of me. Um, because it's easy to get caught up in that idea and watching them eat or in your head, you know, they making judgments of, wow, they're really not eating a lot or rather wait, they're eating way too much. Um, just get rid of that, that background noise, because that's, that's not helpful for you. And they can, they can feel that. So um, what I would recommend as supportive when you are eating with someone with an eating disorder is one, be a normal eater yourself. And if you can't be a normal eater, um, do not bring up diet. Do not bring up weight. Do not bring up um, that you are eating low carb this week or that your sister's boyfriend's brother's (laughs) uncle is doing keto. (laughs) Um, Just keep keep those types of conversation topics away from the table because that's, again, it's just not helpful. And um, it could be really hard for that individual to one, already be sitting at that table eating around people. But two, when you bring up topics like that, you're only causing them to be more stressed out. Um, So keep those topics away. Um, Be a normal eater yourself. And if you can't be, then if you know that you are a a quirky eater or that you are following a specific diet, so your plate is going to look restricted or look different, then don't sit right across from that person. Sit one person down on their left or down on their right so that they don't have to sit across from you and and watch you eat. So um, those are ways that you can just kind of help protect them from whatever it is you might be projecting. I think that's amazing advice. Um, Since you work with parents or with children so much, what advice do you typically give um, parents who have a child with an eating disorder? I am actually, this is good timing. On my website, I have a free download for parents. Um, One is called Loved with an Eating Disorder. It's just a parent's guide for how to to initially educate yourself and understand what it is your child's going through, how you can be a support system for them. And then my second free download is called Mealtime Strategies, specific for this. So um, it goes through some tips you can do as far as supporting your child if you're noticing that they're really struggling how you can um, keep the, the emotional climate at the table very comfortable for them, um, and then how other people at the table can be supportive, what types of topics are um, important to avoid and others that are safe to talk about. But it, it might feel very unnatural in the beginning for a family to try to implement some of those strategies. You may feel like you're walking on eggshells, but eventually you start to realize, wow, you know, there, we have a lot more to talk about than just, you know, bodies or diets or food, you know, there's a lot more to talk about. Um, and it becomes easier, it becomes easier to support that, that child. And then when they start to notice, know what to expect at the table, it becomes easier for them to show up, eat the meal and move on. Awesome. Yeah. And I will link, um, to your website and those downloads as well in the show notes. Um, what I want to make sure that people um, have something to leave here with. So um, even if someone doesn't necessarily have an eating disorder, but maybe just those disordered eating tendencies we were talking about, what resources are out there for them? So um, there are 
self quizzes, and I hesitate to say this, but there are self quizzes you can take online for if you might have an eating disorder. Um, if you go to National Eating Disorder Awareness, their website, they have some information. But um, if, if you are truly kind of on the fence of, is this an actual eating disorder? Should I seek help for this? or not, you can take a self-help quiz, or you could just go see a therapist and talk to them about it. And they would be able to, um, if they have any disorder experience, be able to diagnose you pretty easily or tell you, you don't have any disorder, but we do have some <laughs> stuff we can work on. Um, <laughs> if you are fairly certain that it is disordered eating, um, which is a huge gray area that basically disordered eating, it's not an eating disorder, but it's definitely not normal mm-hmm. eating either. So it is a huge gray area and it can look very differently for, for people. So um, what I would recommend is again, looking for either a therapist or a dietitian or both who specialize in eating disorders, because even though you might not have an eating disorder, those are going to be the professionals who can help you the most. So seeking help in that area, just to kind of talk about it, work through some of those beliefs, why you um, feel the way about food that you do or, um, it could be about exercise, could be about body image and you're going to be very happy. You know, there's never, there's never a good time to work on this stuff, but the sooner you start to ban a diet culture and work more towards normal eating, accepting your body, all that kind of stuff, the happier you will be. And I can promise that I don't have a single client who I've worked on disordered eating with who comes to me and says, you know what? peace out. I'm going to go back to my diet. <laughs> Every, everybody that I've worked with has, has said, I can never imagine dieting. Again, oh, beautiful. Ever. And they just feel so much better about it. Yeah. So I've seen it work <laughs> with people. I feel it personally too. Um, so I, as soon as you can get started, I would say there's never the right time. Just Great. do it. All right. Well, where can people find you? Um, I am on Instagram at bamboo, like the plant bamboo nutrition RD. Um, I'm also on Facebook under the same handle bamboo nutrition RD. And then my website is bamboo nutrition RD.com. Um, I'm based in Columbia, Missouri, but I work with people virtually as well. So even if you are far away, please don't hesitate to reach out to me. Um, we can do some type of coaching or um, I'm happy to just answer questions for you too. If, if you're just wanting to kind of dip your toes in or even help connect you to people you can meet with person to person near you as well. Awesome. Amazing. Well, thank you for all of the information and insight and knowledge that you have in this area. I really think it'll be helpful for so many people. Of course. And thank you, Bretta, uh, because you are a dietitian who definitely models normal eating and health at every size. And at the same time, you can preach gentle nutrition to everyone too. So there are not a lot of dietitians with your level of expertise <laughs> and what you do is amazing and very helpful. So thank you for what you thank do. Thank you. Well. All right. Well, that is it for our podcast today, guys. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us on the Eat With B, the RD podcast. Join us next time for more table talk on nutrition, health, and life.